This is Christina Reese from Glass Tire. I'm here with Neil Farso from Glass Tire, and we are here with the filmmakers of The Killing of Kenneth Chamberlain here at Austin Film Festival. Can you introduce yourselves? My name is David Medell, and I'm the writer and director of the film. My name is Enrico Natale. I'm a producer and actor. My name is Bob Chib, and I'm the uh, executive producer. All right, so is this the debut of this movie here at Austin Film Festival? It is. We are really looking forward to getting the film in front of audiences, and we've done a couple of you know test screenings with five or six friends and those kinds of things. We're really looking forward to getting it in front of audiences. And well, let's start about what the film is about. Can you tell us what it is? Sure. So the film uh, the film tells the story. Uh, the 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 film is based on the true story of the events that led to the death of Kenneth Chamberlain Sr who was uh, an elderly African-American former Marine who suffered from bipolar disorder, who was killed during a conflict with police officers who were sent to check on him to make sure that he was okay. A, w a welfare check. Correct, correct. Uh, he, and where was the story? Where did this take place, sorry? It, uh, it took place in White Plains, New York, and, um, and, and this was in 2011. And he, he wore a medical pendant, he wore a medical pendant around his neck that you know, many, many people with uh, you know, various health conditions wear, and he accidentally set off the uh, medical pendant while he was sleeping. That triggered this series of events that uh, prompted the police, first responders, to check on him. Uh, and the, the police were the first ones to knock on his door. You know, he wasn't expecting them. He was confused about why they were there. They were confused by some of his behavior because he was, as I mentioned, suffering from bipolar disorder. And they woke him up. They woke him up, yeah. right? This was, this was very early in the morning, about 5 o'clock in the morning. So tell me why this particular story now, and especially with the spate of you know, recent news of similar kinds of things that have happened, including in Texas, several in Texas recently. Uh, tell us about that. Why this story and why now? Right. There's a, you know, a, a really important national conversation that's going on right now about institutional discrimination and uh, racism. And, you know, questions are being asked, important questions about whether everyone is really given equal treatment under the law. This film and this incident in particular tackle those questions, I, I would say, interesting but also really tragic ways. The film deals a lot with the way that these officers reacted to Kenneth Chamberlain Sr., given that he was doing some things that they didn't understand, you know, he was experiencing his, the delusions at the time. These officers uh, uh, were not well equipped to uh, de-escalate somebody who is suffering from a mental health crisis. And their lack of training and lack of understanding of what Kenneth was going through is definitely something that, that you know, I would say contributed to his death, combined with the fact that he was a person of color and the police were recorded during this incident. They were recorded using racial epithets. They were recorded uh, ridiculing his military service. Mm. Um, so in many ways, it doesn't sound, you know, when, when, you, when you read about this incident, when you watch the, there's some very, very disturbing, difficult to watch footage that was captured on a taser camera that was mounted on the taser that was eventually used on Kenneth Chamberlain Sr. And watching that footage and listening to the audio that was recorded, uh, you know, it's not, not an easy thing to listen to, but you really get the sense that these officers were ill-prepared and did not come in with the right mindset of how to de-escalate the situation. And it's not just this one situation, right? I mean, our mental health care system is in crisis right now. One out of every 10 calls that the police receive is related to someone or, or a person that has mental illness. About 25% of shootings today are related to someone that has mental illness. And to build on David's point, police today and law enforcement, generally speaking, 
just aren't equipped to handle these types of situations. You know, when you go to the police academy, you get about 850 hours nationally in terms of your overall training. On average, about 10 hours are actually dedicated to, to dealing with those that actually suffer from mental illness. And so you find in many of these situations, those individuals that are unarmed are actually in a position where they're vulnerable and wind up getting shot by those that dare to actually serve and protect them. And so we've got to do something, and these are avoidable conditions, right? And so we just gotta find a way to, to change these scenarios by changing policy and then doing things around ongoing education and training, especially for, for law enforcement. What was the um, sort of impetus and the challenges or opportunities that you all saw in dramatizing this as opposed to making a documentary, you know? Narrative films offer something different than documentary films, and I think that looking at a, at a, at a certain subject matter, um, you know, a filmmaker has to decide, is it going to be, the end, is the end product going to be more salient for audiences if it's made into a documentary? or if it's made into, uh, into a, a narrative feature that's based on the true story, uh, but you, know, you, have, you have actors in the film, you have a, a script that's written that, that is based on the real incident, but also timelines are compressed a little bit, certain characters are composited, those kinds of things. This incident, right from the beginning, I, I was actually initially imagining writing a play that was based on this incident, because I, I have a background in theater, and I've been working in film for several years now, but my background is in theater, and I was initially imagining producing this as a play, just having, you know, a simple set piece in the, in the middle of the stage, just the door, and, you know, the audience would watch the officers on one side, and Kenneth reacting on the other side. I think you should still do that. It, 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 it would <laughs> I mean, be a really, it would be a really valuable experience, I think, for for an audience to sit in a, in a theater and uh, experience both of these stories playing out simultaneously. Because in the film, obviously, you have to cut back and forth. Mm -hmm. You're only really we we try to cut back and forth and give the audience a sense of what's going on on both sides of the of the door throughout the film. But but a play would provide a really interesting opportunity to actually show both simultaneously. simultaneously. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So it's been nine years since that incident, and, and I, I can tell that you guys did a fair amount of research. Are you seeing any changes, any policy changes, anything new, sweeping, positive? Are you, is there any optimism in what may be shifting in the training of police officers and first responders? Not yet. I mean, I'm, we're hoping that this film, at least for this story, can give some sort of light and, and uh, you know, especially for Kenneth Chamberlain uh, Jr., who's going to be at the screening, he'll be at the talk back afterwards as well. Um, this means more than any of us to him, and I think that we, we have to do a better job as a nation to be aware of what's going on. We hope that this movie can do that. There's, there's an interesting experiment that I did. Uh, I've done it a couple times over the last few years since, since I started working on this film. I just went to YouTube and I typed in police recruitment video. And it's, it's a, that's a really interesting experiment to do because you get a, a wide variety of different types of police recruitment videos. And some of, those, some of those videos I found really nuanced in their approach to how they were advertising. There were police departments that advertised you know, these positions as, as positions where you get to serve the community, meet new people, build bridges, build connections in communities. You get to help, help people who are really disadvantaged. And there were also videos that looked like Call of Duty commercials, where you saw, the first thing you saw was, you know, the action movie music comes up, and you see the, 
the, the armored car pull up to a building. You see the SWAT, the SWAT guys kicking in the door and pointing it's like their guns. It's like military recruitment, right? And highly, highly militarized. You know, and, and that caused me to ask the question: Are police departments really recruiting people with the right types of qualities? Are they really recruiting? Uh, people with proclivities for patience and understanding and empathy and complex decision making that police officers also you know often have to make. Or are they recruiting people with proclivities for aggression, violence, authoritarianism? And I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. Some, you know, like I mentioned, some some departments appear to be highlighting the more legal, ethical, complex decision making and community b bridge building aspects of policing, and other departments seem to highlight the more action-oriented, militaristic aspects of policing. Yeah, um, so, you know, recently another person in Texas was killed by a, a police officer for a wellness yeah. check as well. Very and recently. Yeah, very recently, and the, the neighbor called 311, not the 911, because the door was open at 2 a.m., and it seems like that they just kept the door open because it cooled the house down, and so then they could kind of see out on the street, et cetera, and the police officer shot the woman in you know, 0.6 seconds immediately. And so, you know, with these things, and then there was another video recently where a police officer is wrestling an 11-year-old girl to the ground. You know, I really kind of wonder, like, steroid use and police officers is something I think of a lot. And I'm always just thinking of things like, well, what would the actual practical, you know, approaches be to de-escalating the police force from a, basically a militarized adrenalized response occupying army you know so some people have said things like well if there was a rule that police officers had to live in the precinct that they were patrolling mm -hmm. or you know to access their firearm they had to go into the trunk of their car which I think they do in the UK what are some things that you all think would actually be items or policies that would you know really affect police brutality right right uh, it's, it's a complicated problem. I taught special education for many years. I worked with students with disabilities, uh, individuals with autism, and emotional and behavioral dis disorders. And one of the things that we had to do working with those populations is go through very extensive crisis management training. And we had to learn how to intervene in a crisis in a way that kept the person in crisis safe, us safe, and everyone else around us safe. And, and the training is it's, it's very extensive, it's very specific about what type of body language is gonna be the most effective, what, t what type of tone of voice is gonna be the most effective, what types of demands, if any demands, do you place on the person in crisis? How do you approach this situation and guide the person in crisis through the de-escalation process and returning the situation to rationality? And like I said, the, the training is very, very extensive and very specific. And we have to get recertified every single year to maintain our certification in these crisis intervention techniques. My thought is, if the training has to be so extensive for special education teachers and into people who work with people with autism or people who work with adults and children with emotional and behavioral disorders, shouldn't it be something similar for police officers? Because police officers probably have just as many contacts with individuals with mental health challenges as special yeah, teachers do. 25% of all, uh, you know, shootings. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, that's, I mean, I 100% agree. It's crisis training. They, mm -hmm. it, they are not being trained the way they're supposed to. And like, we, we as, as civilians, we can't comprehend a lot, I think, unless you are a police officer, going into a neighborhood, feeling potentially a threat, and automatically assuming something of a neighborhood. 
Mm-hmm. You walk in and go, well, I arrested 40 people here for drug dealing. Uh, likely this person I'm about to deal with is probably a drug dealer. Mm-hmm. And that assumption and it goes into their head, right? For me, it, this makes the most sense. You need to train them on how to understand and comprehend what they are listening to, reacting the proper way to a situation. And I think that they just aren't. They, they're reacting instinctually, and their instinct is danger, danger, danger. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do hurt you. A lot of the crisis management training is about kind of going against your instincts. Because if, if you see someone escalated, your instinct, a lot of the time, just human nature, is to escalate with them. Is to, you know, their adrenaline is pumping, which causes your adrenaline to start pumping. And a lot of what you're trained to do in crisis management is stay calm or appear calm and present logical options to the person in crisis in a respectful and empathetic way, you know, and, and a lot of it just comes down to having compassion for the person who's in crisis. And it's very clear that these these officers, that's what really stuck out to me about this incident when I first started researching it. It's, it, it was so clear that these officers were very ill-prepared, not trained, and weren't using the necessary empathy or compassion to approach Kenneth Chamberlain as a human being. So how, how will people be able to see this movie? It screens uh, Sunday, October 27th at 4 p.m. at St. David's Church at Bethel Hall. Okay. Uh, and then Monday, October 28th at 7 p.m. at Galaxy Highland Screen 2. Okay. Great. Um, we'd love uh, the support for everyone to come out. And we feel like this is an important movie for people to see. And we, we want to get the word out there because there was no indictment. No consequences. You know, Jeff mm-hmm. Sessions dismissed the entire case about mm-hmm. a year and a half ago mm-hmm. and just threw it all mm-hmm. uh, Even though there's significant evidence proving that there's something that happened that was I mean someone died over a wellness check Mm -hmm. let's make that very clear this just happened a few weeks ago in Texas that's not okay yeah I mean the fact that Amber Geiger was convicted in Texas for shooting her neighbor was pretty remarkable even that is a big big deal just for the fact that where if it was anyone else in any other position it's just open and closed they would Mm -hmm. absolutely be convicted they absolutely would be going to jail but with the immunity that police officers have it's just a huge deal when something like that happens and it's just reflexively like well there's no and so you know that's Mm -hmm. just that has to change too you know but kenneth chamberlain jr has been fighting this fight since his father died and he has been very much a part of this process with us. He's been supportive of this film. We've been talking, David's been talking to him longer than I have, and, and you know he's gonna be there on Sunday and Monday. And really, truly, for his family and for them, we, we just want people to know this story. Mm-hmm. You know, It's just so important for him, and he will not stop fighting until he dies. Mm-hmm. I can promise you that. Mm-hmm. Um, for his father's justice, do you have a website or something that people can go to for information about the film, of where it would screen? And So and we, we, we'd love for you to follow us. On, uh, we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, it's just The Killing of KC Film. Okay. Again, hashtag The Killing of KC Film. That's our handle on all the social media. Follow us there, and we'll get more information. This is our world premiere, so this is the first time the public will be seeing this movie. Great. Right. Well, congratulations, Thanks. Yeah. and uh, well done, and good luck. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks.